Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, hosted on February 25th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. It's called the Poisoner's Handbook, but in the most subversive way, it's about something that is near and dear to my heart, which is that I think chemistry is both beautiful and sinister. And that's Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Deborah Blum, author of the new work, The Poisoner's Handbook. We'll talk about that handbook and how, thanks to the work of some dedicated individuals, it's a lot harder to get away with murder through chemistry than it used to be. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Deb Bloom, we were both at the recent meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in San Diego. We spoke on February 19th. Many people may not read the acknowledgments, or in your book they're called they're called the gratitudes. Yes. But I read them, and uh, I just want to know: Is your husband any more relaxed around you since uh, <laughs> since the publication of your book all about poison? Not entirely, but he did tell me that uh, when they find his body, they're all going to know who did it. <laughs> you you say that he uh, probably subconsciously, when you would be talking about working on the book, he would. Move his coffee cup just a little further away from you and closer to him so he could keep an eye on it. Well, imagine that you're sitting at breakfast and your wife is saying, you know, what's really interesting about the way that cyanide kills people, and it's like a reflex, right? Cyanide comes out of her mouth and your coffee cup is moving. I've seen this many mornings, and I'm just the kind of person who yaks about what she's working on, so he knows a lot about poison. So the book is obviously all about poison. And that makes it all about chemistry. It's really a chemistry book in disguise. It is. It's called The Poisoner's Handbook, but in the most subversive way, it's about something that is near and dear to my heart, which is that I think chemistry is both beautiful and uh, sinister. Yeah, because what I didn't realize until I read your book is that basically up until about 100 years ago, you could pretty much kill somebody with poison and get away with it. That's right. Uh, New York City issued a report in 1918 in which they actually wrote that poisoners could operate with impunity in New York City. And so part of my book is about the invention of forensic toxicology. And we take this kind of CSI stuff for so for granted now that scientists are taken seriously, that they know how to do these amazing chemical things. But... Before the 1920s, uh, it was a terrific time to be a poisoner and not so great a time to be uh, a poisoner's intended victim. Or a researcher trying to prove that uh, somebody had been poisoned and somebody in particular had done the poisoning because the techniques had to be developed. And you talk a lot about these two main people who were the the real heroes of of the book really and the real heroes of what has turned into forensic science that's right and i think of them as heroes i mean these guys were civil servants that was the first city uh, the first chief medical examiner of new york city charles norris he started in 1918 and he hired the first forensic chemist at an american city whose name was alexander gettler and they were flooded with poisons. There were murders. There were uh, different public health hazards that had come up. There was a, not a lot of good science to understand those chemicals. 
So they were doing this research as they went. They would get a murder case, and sometimes they would be doing the animal experiments to figure out the poison right in the middle of the trial. Or Gettler used to, I always love this story, I don't know why, but he would go to his corner butcher shop, and he would pick up a few pounds of raw liver. Which he paid for himself. Which he paid for himself. They were so underfunded. And he would go and chop it up and inject different chemicals in it, daily just to try to figure out what these chemicals did in tissue. I mean, it was that by the seat of their pants, literally. What they did in tissue so that when they were presented with a corpse, they could look at the internal organs of that corpse and say, well, now we know if the liver is now this color, if the kidneys have this kind of uh, damage to them. We know what kind of poison was involved. That's exactly right. And for example, if you took a, a really common and well-known poison today, carbon monoxide, it turns the internal organs a kind of a cherry red pink. And that effect in the bloodstream also flushes your skin. So occasionally they would get uh, people who had, there was one case I wrote about in which a man had strangled his wife and tried to and then turned on gas and tried to pretend she died of an accidental gas poisoning. They actually could look at the color of her skin, pale, look at her internal organs, normal, and say, "No, there's no way this was carbon monoxide poisoning." But imagine if they hadn't known that. Imagine that he could easily have gotten away with it. So all of these little steps, these baby steps, built toxicology, and built the forensics we have today. And not only did they have to pay for things themselves because they were underfunded, but there, there was some actual hostility on the part of the political powers of the time. And it's also, the book is kind of a history of Jazz Age New York, too, because you get all the stories of the corruption in government and the the shenanigans going on in the just the way the whole city was run. And these... Scientists had to fight all of that just to try to get their evidence together. That's right. I mean, I wanted my book to have kind of the feel of an early 20th century murder mystery, which was one of the kind of inspirational sources for what I did. I love Agatha Christie, and I love Dorothy Sayers, and I love the kind of elegant, murderous intent behind the way they told stories. I wanted my book to have that feel, and to do that, I wanted it to be have a real Jazz Age New York feel. So there's a lot of background of prohibition, bootlegging. There's great stuff in there. Like, I mean, I've lived in New York all my life. I didn't know that there used to be a Ninth Avenue elevated train. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't even realized, of course, I don't live in New York, but I hadn't realized that there were elevated trains and that they frequently caught on fire and crashed into each other. They were all made out of wood back then. Yes, and it was a very corrupt private uh, system, uh, which goes back to the corrupt politics. Of course, this is the day of Kent Tammany Hall, and uh, they didn't even have a professional medical examiner. Norris was the first. They had uh, coroners, which were really patronage positions. And the coroner that he replaced actually uh, was so drunk so much of the time that he, he would show up at crime scenes drunk, plastered, and in the courtroom. And he would show up in the courtroom drunk and drink while he was in the courtroom. It was unbelievable. And yet, this corrupt system was so in place that when Charles Norris first applied to be medical examiner, they were first required him to do an autopsy as part of the uh, uh, qualification. 
And then they prosecuted him, filed charges against him for doing an autopsy. And it was incredible. Fortunately, the governor of New York stepped in, and he actually got the job and did an amazing job. But he fought with city politicians throughout, which was one of the reasons they never had any money. And I've asked myself, Norris came from a wealthy society family. He had independent income. He was passionately devoted to public service. You see that throughout his tenure, he died in 1935, but he really wanted what he did, forensics, to change the world. And he spent so much of his money on that laboratory. He paid people salaries. He bought not just Gettler buying liver and other supplies, but Norris supplied everything to the office clock when the mayor took it away. One of the really frightening things about the book is that in addition to the to the purposeful murders that go into telling the story of, of the use of poisons and of the way that they figured out, the toxicologists figured out how to identify poisons, the scary thing was just how many deaths occurred by accident every year, or accident's the wrong word, by, by negligence. Because there was no price to pay if uh, somebody wanted to fumigate yes, and it happened to kill three people in the apartment upstairs, there was no penalty for that. And hundreds, I mean, if the numbers of people who were being killed in New York City, because the book is mostly based in New York City, if, for example, 600 people, I think one of the poisons discussed in the book, maybe it was um, cyanide or, or I forget if it was carbon monoxide. I think it was carbon monoxide. If if that would kill 600 people a year today in New York, there would be a huge outcry. But back then it was just, hey, you know, you you were unlucky. You died from carbon monoxide. It was incredible. And, and one of the ways I did research for the book is that I trolled through – uh, the newspapers of the time. I was looking for coverage, and I and you could not open up a paper in that period without seeing accidental poison deaths, spectacular poison suicides, um, and, and really some very bizarre murders. And and uh, and you're right, a real acceptance of it. But you have to remember that this was in an era where a lot of these chemicals were just being introduced. They were the backbone of the industrial age. People regarded them as this scientific magic for which you had to somehow pay a price. And there, so there was this bizarre acceptance of that. I'm not saying we've entirely outgrown that. People still die of carbon monoxide poisoning. We still have industrial chemicals that we haven't figured out. I mean, in some ways, it's been interesting to me to think about the fact that there were a lot of lessons learned in the 1920s that we still seem to be learning, right? But at that time, people lived in a bizarre soup of chemicals. It was it was really incredible. You obviously did a lot of uh, trolling through old newspapers. Mm -hmm. uh, that's clear from the, the descriptions in the book. You also got your hands on actual medical records and scientific records of the time. And I hear through the grapevine, because I'm here at this conference with a lot of other science journalists, that you actually got sick from handling some very old 
records. I did. I think I just was like one of the first people to kind of excavate these boxes. Because people have said to me, even forensic scientists, this was a forgotten story. I didn't even realize how important these guys were. I mean, it's it's one of the things that's really interesting to me when you go back into science history is you find people who have done these amazing things. And and they're in the footnotes. I mean, Gettler was in the footnotes as the father of American forensic toxicology, and yet their actual stories are lost, you know, if they didn't have someone to tell their stories. So I've realized, uh, I was thinking later, and I thought, you know, I'm such a good friend to dead scientists. Dead scientists should, like, contact me because I'm so good at telling their stories. Well, we can find a medium. That'll be a whole different show. Yes. But um, Gettler is still cited. Yes. I mean, his his work on cyanide, he did a, a paper on cyanide that still turns up in EPA citations. He did the fundamental work on uh, a poison called thallium, which is a, a massive systemic poison that is still used sometimes as a pesticide. He did, was the first scientist in the world to figure out a way to tell that a person had been intoxicated at time of death. If you think about it, we take this for granted, right? Uh, someone di- It's a DUI crash. The driver was drunk. No one knew how to do that. They didn't have a clue how to figure this out. And he not only did that uh, research, he built the apparatus, these enormous clunking apparatus to actually distill out alcohol from dead people's brains and get a sense of intoxication. He was the first scientist to do the same thing for chloroform. You know, how much chloroform is a dead person's brain and how did it affect them? He did fundamental work on the chemistry of carbon monoxide in cigarette smoke. He did it for general carbon monoxide poisoning. He was the first scientist to show that uh, the gas carbon monoxide uh, only affects you when you are alive. You don't uh, absorb it after death which is really important because otherwise, how can you figure out the fatal dose? If if you actually absorb carbon monoxide after death and you're examining the corpse, you have to know if carbon monoxide is absorbed after death to figure out what was the fatal dose. And he did that work too. When you actually get into what he did, he wrote the book on some of the most important poison research that we have still have today. Amazing guy, incredibly dedicated. And carbon monoxide in particular, just to follow up on that, you have to be alive to be poisoned by it because you have to be breathing because the carbon monoxide takes the place of ox- it binds to the heme and hemoglobin That's right. more tightly than oxygen does. So that you get, instead of oxyhemoglobin, which is sort of the carrier system for oxygen in your bloodstream, you get carboxyhemoglobin. And it's really a fascinating chemical reaction because it, you know, it produces that bright cherry color, but it keeps your blood bright red for weeks and months. And he did that work too, which helped because if someone had been killed by carbon monoxide poisoning and you only suspected it later, he actually showed you could dig up someone months after they died and there would be their blood almost glowing in the dark, right? I'm exaggerating, but literally glowing. Uh, Carbon monoxide's a fascinating poison. You devote a chapter to carbon monoxide, uh, chloroform, arsenic, cyanide. One of the things about cyanide, cyanide's portrayed in film all the time as uh, 
almost instantaneous and pretty much painless death. But that ain't the way it is. No, it's nothing of the time. I mean, it kills at a super high dose. It might kill you in minutes, but it's extremely painful death. Uh, you go through a form of chemical suffocation uh, because like carbon monoxide, it shoves the oxygen out of your bloodstream. It disrupts nervous system transmissions. You have horrible gasping convulsions. I mean, people go through terrible convulsions and sometimes it's minutes, but literally it can be hours. And I told one story, I think, in that of a scientist who tested carbon. I mean, scientists are fairly crazy in the way There's they There's a lot of risks. that in your book. They're, they're actually testing these substances. On themselves. Cyanide, arsenic, on yes. themselves. I mean, there were scientists who were eat, mixing arsenic into different foods to see, can you detect the taste? They're, I, I don't know how they survived that. And there were scientists who would take what they thought of as very small doses of poisons just so that they knew the results. And they, and this one guy was screaming that he was suffocating and he had taken a very small dose. I mean, they saved him, but he wasn't going, well, I'll just take a little nap now. He was hysterical. Uh, so carbon monoxide, uh, wood alcohol, mm -hmm. ethanol. What are the other poisons that you devote chapters to? Thallium and... I, thallium, I did methyl alcohol, which is the same thing as wood alcohol, but I was looking at it in the light of... Uh, poisoning and prohibition. And I did a chapter on radium, mm -hmm. uh, speaking of Marie Curie, which was a, really an interesting uh, thing for me to look at because you don't normally, for a long time, people wouldn't have said, well, let's classify radioactive elements as a poison. I, recently, we had that uh, case where Russia apparently assassinated a former spy by putting a, a plutonium radionuclide into his food. So that in that case, you would say, yeah, that's a uh, radiation poisoning. And radium was really interesting to me because I wanted to look at, you know, at what point does something change from being a miracle substance as radium it was when it was discovered? People thought of it as this radiative miracle, like little suns that you could swallow and it would make you healthier and light up your life, essentially, in when all I kinds of ways. When I was a kid, I had a watch with still with radium hands and and the numbers were uh, made out really? of radium so that it glowed in the dark. And women in particular uh, used to work in factories and they would paint those numbers on. And they would touch the brush to their tongue. That's right. They would sharpen the point of the brush with their lips. So they were constantly swallowing radium. And this became a, a really famous public health case or an industrial health case, uh, which I, I, I talked about. These uh, women were eventually were known as the radium girls. And they began dying of, they died horrible deaths. Their jaws crumbled away, their bones fractured. Uh, they had developed these terrible aplastic anemias. And people kept saying, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. It turned out, and, and this is to me why sort of the mechanics and chemistry and the way poisons work are so interesting, that if you were going to be poisoned by radium, the very worst way to be poisoned by it is to swallow it because the body essentially treats it as if it were calcium. So these women were swallowing radium. It was going straight to their bones, and it, then it would stay there spitting out radiation and just break, not only destroying the bones, but destroying the mirror. It was 
phenomenal. And yet there was huge government resistance to regulating it still for several years. I mean, it's fascinating to watch the politics of the way governments respond to, to poisons and, and those kind of public health threats. Because it's usually a threat to business. That's exactly right. And so in the case of radium, these poor little Italian-American watch painters, that's mostly who they were, didn't actually force a major change in government policy. But what happened was at the same time, I, you know, I was telling you that radium was considered so healthy for so long. Uh, radium was in health drinks. It was in uh, things to improve your complexion. And some very wealthy and influential people became sick from radiation poisoning. And it took that case to change the regulation. So what uh, of all the stories that you weave throughout the book of individual murder cases. What was the one that was your favorite? Well, the one that creeped me out the most. We'll, we'll go with creep you out rather than favorite, sure. Yes, was an arsenic murderess named Fanny Creighton. And when I'm writing a book I, I, like this where I'm telling, I'm telling the story of, of people, and so I live in the heads of the people I'm writing about to some extent. You know, I'm thinking, why did the scientist do this then? What drove him to do that? And so in this case, I, she was a murderess who appears twice in my book. I spent a lot of time, you know, getting close to her. And at one point, I actually had to slam my laptop down, closed, and leave the house. I thought, I'm so weirding myself out with this woman, right? But so Fanny Creighton killed her brother, for a $1,000 insurance policy and got away with it. I mean, she's a great case study because the poison, the science that could have convicted her was completely washed away by legal maneuvers. Uh, she was wonderful at portraying herself as, as sort of a martyred saint. She had a great public personality of sort of a persecuted Madonna-like personality. The newspapers loved her. She went off, and then she comes back again, and she kills someone else. And it's clear that she would have killed someone else. So that one for me was a great, if they hadn't caught her, and they did catch her in this second time she was convicted. I, I wanted to look at the fact that poisoners can get really overconfident. Because my book is not a, uh, it doesn't glorify poison in any way. It's not, uh, I, I'm not saying that poisoners are wonderful, I'm not, and I am saying that poison deaths are terrible. And so Fanny Creighton, for me, is a great example of what happens to poisoners, which is they're so convinced they can get away with it, and yet here's the science finally in her second conviction coming up and completely nailing her. I love that case. And how did they actually catch her? She poisoned uh, actually a friend and a neighbor, a woman who lived in the same house as her, and they, uh, in this case, again, she used arsenic. Arsenic was, you know, her favorite poison. In this case, they did a meticulous analysis. Gettler was able to prove that uh, her this poor sick woman, they had fed her an eggnog loaded with arsenic, uh, the, that the eggnog contained, like, it was like something like 10 times the lethal dose. And they found it in their tissues, and they tracked down the purchase of the poison, and everything was completely lined up. And and so that's one of the closing cases in my book. 
Her first trial in which she walks away is one of the opening cases. And I love that arc in which you finally see the forensics and the science falling into place and them being able to kind of close their hands around these poisoners and saying, no, 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 no more. We're doing this now. It's a, it's a terrific book. It's, it's a fun book, but you're absolutely right. In, in no way do the poisoners ever get your sympathy or, mm-hmm. or seem like romantic characters. There are many places in the book where uh, literally a hundred years later, it breaks your heart. This poor girl who goes and has the huckleberry pie. Yes. And, and her mother who wanted to give her a box lunch to take to work that day. And instead, the teenage girl, she goes to the local cafeteria and buys the huckleberry pie. And a few hours later, she's dead. And right. She, and after all these years, you read it and you, you still feel terrible. Isn't that the saddest story? And she was a 17-year-old girl who just was working to help support her family. And she died the very within hours after eating lunch. And when the police went to talk to her mother, uh, all her mother could talk about was the fact that she had wanted to make her daughter a lunch. And I, I, it's such a heartbreaking moment. And you know, you'd replay it a million times, the if only, if only I'd made her do that. And I wanted people to see that, that these are losses and real people. Somebody had put arsenic in the pie crust. Someone had sneaked into the kitchen of this restaurant the night before and mixed arsenic into a bowl of pastry dough that was waiting for the next day's lunch. And then, I assume, uh, sat and watched. And so I wanted to show people, to me, poisoners are the creepiest murderers. They are premeditated, always. You don't have an impulse poisoning. They're incredibly cold at heart and calculated. And I didn't want to glamorize that in any way. I wanted to show the effects of that. I wanted to show how poisoned work. And I wanted to look at the way that scientists finally figured out a way to catch up with these guys because they really needed to be caught up with. And, well, I mean, one of the things I find so interesting about poison is that it shows us as people in some ways at our absolute worst. I mean, these very cold, calculated killings show us at our worst. And yet you have this passionate work to stop it and belief that it's so morally wrong that it gets this high priority. And that shows us at our best, our belie- our absolute insistence that this has to be stopped. And so I love the way it shows us sort of in dark and light. Check out Deborah Blum's blog about culture and chemistry. It's called Speakeasy Science, and you can find it at blog.debrablum.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, speaking of poison, residents of Utah die of poison at twice the rate as the national average. Story two, new nouns and verbs get learned in different parts of the brain. Story three, relativity theory says that the pull of gravity will make clocks run slower. New research has confirmed this to an unprecedented degree by measuring the vibrations of atoms. And story four, male house finches give a wide berth to other finches who are sick, which enables the sick birds to get more to eat at bird feeders and thus recover faster from their illness. 
A correction from last week, I referred to the bacterium that causes malaria. It is, in fact, a protozoan that causes malaria, thanks to Australian listener Neil Saunders for catching that error. And time is up. Story one is true. Residents of Utah do die of poison at twice the national average. So says Deb Bloom in her blog, based on a recent article in the Salt Lake City Tribune. She writes that the national average for poison fatalities, mostly accidents and suicides, is 11 deaths per 100,000 residents annually. In Utah, though, the yearly rate is 21.3 per 100,000. Painkillers, cleaning products, and cosmetics are the big three poisoners nationwide. And nobody's really sure why the rate is so high in Utah, or as high as it is in the rest of the country. But multiple prescriptions and plain old carelessness are probably big factors. Story two is true. Different parts of the brain apparently are assigned the tasks of learning new nouns versus new verbs. That's according to research in the journal NeuroImage. The scientists observed the discrete brain functions in action with functional magnetic resonance imaging. 21 subjects learned new words while their brains were tracked. They had to learn the words which were made up based on context. For example, in the phrase, the student is nissing noodles for breakfast, and the man nissed a delicious meal, the verb niss means cook or possibly burned, or ruined, or threw up. Anyway, learning nouns activates the left fusiform gyrus, while learning verbs switches on other regions, the left inferior frontal gyrus, and part of the left posterior medial temporal gyrus, for those of you ballivating at home. And story three is true. Einstein was right again, according to measurements of the vibrations of cesium atoms, Researchers hit some vibrating atoms with a laser, which kind of boosted them up against the pull of gravity, and these atoms experienced time as passing more quickly than the ones still under the influence of the greater gravitational force. By the way, one of the authors of the study in the journal Nature is Nobel physicist Stephen Chu, the Secretary of Energy. I wonder whether the other cabinet members find relativistic physics equally fascinating. All of which means that story four about sick finches getting lots of space at feeders is totally bogus. Because what is true is that healthy finches actually prefer to feed next to sick ones, despite the increased likelihood of catching the illness. The risky behavior probably springs from the more docile attitude of the sick finches, who are less likely to hassle the healthy ones trying to feed. The finding is in the journal Biology Letters, and was discussed on the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, on February 19th, which noted that eating with the infirm means you're more likely to wind up with seed in your beak than a beak in your eye. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll be back soon with a discussion about the recent meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. In the meantime, get your science news at scientificamerican.com where you can find our in-depth report on the science of the Winter Olympics. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Cyan. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 